Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. How many Earth-like planets are out there? How many of these might have life as we know it? What about life as we don't know it? Well, hello there, and welcome to the 503rd edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Paul, and those cosmic questions are going to be our concern tonight. Ben uh, has a school-related emergency, not an emergency, but a lot to do in Boston today, so he's he's there at Emerson College, and we'll have to uh, forego his uh, shining presence this evening. Uh, this evening, we bring you one of the more brilliant minds in the UFO field, making his debut on the show this evening. And we welcome your calls at any point. Uh, locally, it's 401-766-1240 or 800-449-1240 from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada. Mark D'Antonio is a trained astronomer, and he has spent decades capturing thousands of images of celestial phenomena using everything from small cameras and backyard telescopes to multi-million dollar telescopes at large observatories around the world. Mark is also the National Director of Photo and Video Analysis for the Mutual UFO Network, MUFON, or MUFON as it's sometimes pronounced. Uh, in addition, he creates digital and physical astronomical models for museums, media producers, and other clients. Uh, Mark was a speaker at the first New England UFO conference in Lemonster, Massachusetts a few weeks ago, uh, which is where we first had the pleasure of meeting him and interviewing him for a special podcast, which will shortly appear on BehindTheParanormal.com once my perfectionist son is satisfied with the quality of it. Mark D'Antonio, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Well, thank you so much, Paul. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here with you. Well, that's great. We... uh uh, you, you just uh, we just sort of connected when we met you in Lemonster. We're very glad to have you on the show, uh, Mark. Yeah, great. Okay, before we get to the uh, into the UFO subject, can you tell us about the show you just did with CNN? Well, uh, it was actually a uh, a show that was sanctioned by the Mutual UFO Network, and a variety of us within uh, MUFON appeared in the show. Uh, it'll be on in April sometime. So there's just a you know it's it's forward looking. But the show was actually about uh, UFOs, and it was part of a television series on CNN um, called Inside Man with Morgan Spurlock. Um, Morgan Spurlock is the filmmaker who did Supersize Me. Um, oh, yeah. So he's, he's well-known as a good documentarian, so he took on the subject of UFOs. And so he, he went around the country and collected data on UFOs and then brought that data here. Uh, have me look at it and analyze it uh, and to help him try and figure out what it was he was actually seeing, whether it was a UFO or not. And so uh, that's just what we did. And, and we talked a little bit about um, the kind of things that will appear as a UFO that aren't UFOs. Um, and it's part of the problem, Paul, is that you know I, I, I'm an experiencer. I've had an experience I can't explain. Uh, and I've believed in the fact that there is extraterrestrial life ever since I was in college and started to see the sheer number of stars that looked like they might support habitable planets. And, and, and well before the planets were even found, uh, I, I began to tell my professors there that I really believe that there's life elsewhere. And they kind of smirked because they didn't have data to support that. So I, I, I may have said this to you and others before, but the head of the observatory uh, there, where I was working the midnight dawn shift for years on end, 
looked at me and said, um, Mr. D'Antonio, get back in the observatory, leave Captain Kirk to us. (laughs) 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 Which was sort of like, okay, great. So I didn't really get much traction. But then in 1988, when the first planet was was found, uh, you know, just a few years after I actually graduated with my degree in astronomy, the the tides have turned, so to speak, and now... You know, as as we'll get into it, you'll, you know, you know, you have plenty of questions, I'm sure. And but as we get into it, we'll see that that implausibility of life elsewhere has now been replaced with a plausibility. Mm-hmm. It's a major shift. A major shift. I remember, Mark. Back, I don't. I think I don't know. You and I might. I think you're. I think you're a little younger than I am. But I remember. I think it was 1966 when a space. It was unmanned, but it went out. I guess it was on the way to the moon or something for some sort of experiment, and it turned its camera back and took a picture of the Earth, the entire globe, for the first time, as far as we know. And people were were floored by this, by the sight of this little planet all by itself. And uh, there was a certain, I wouldn't call it a paradigm shift, but certainly an attitude shift. And um, I don't know, it sort of dovetails with what you just said in a way. I remember that very clearly. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, you're right. Well, Mark, when it comes to UFO images, and we'll, we'll get into everything you mentioned as we go, uh, oh, what no do you look for that might indicate their validity? Well, it depends. If we're looking at a photograph, uh, the first thing I do is I validate that it's a real photo. Uh, you know, there's a number of analysis techniques that you can use to see if a photo is genuine. There are ways, unbeknownst to a lot of people, for being able to detect forgery in a photo and that's something that's very important to me. I want to detect forgery right up front. There's ways to even detect based on the analysis, and and, and this is something that I'll, I can talk a little bit more about, whether you use, say, a Photoshop or a different program mm-hmm. to actually do the forging. Now, some people out there might say, oh, that's, there's, there's digital data attached to every photo, and it's called um, uh, EXIF data, E-X-I-F, for exchangeable uh, you know, file data, and um, what happens is active data would possibly tell you that Photoshop was used, but you can actually do an analysis of the photo itself without looking at that data attached to the photo, so it may not have it, and tell if Photoshop was used. Hmm. And that's the kind of thing, you know, you have to have backup for your tools because sometimes you don't get the easy data to look at in a photo. So when you do an analysis of a photo, you first you, you validate that it's a real photo. And so I do that first. The next thing you do is you validate location, time, and you cross-reference it with both the vast database online that we have in Mutual UFO Network and with your own experiences. And you try to decide whether what you're seeing is something that you've seen before or something that's in the database. And if it's something that's in a database, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the same thing but it's a starting point, and that's the thing that we look for is that starting point for the analysis. So uh, if I get a photo of a light in the sky that's, that's, you know, blinking or whatever, it looks like a light, you know, a a red light that's going on and off and leaves a solid trail with it, typically, typically that means it's a regular aircraft, and you're looking at the one, uh, you know, you're looking at one light uh, on the rudder maybe that's white and is just constantly on, Uh, Some other aircraft have a red blinking light up there, but sometimes they have a a, a light on the bottom that blinks. And so you look and you do a timing. You say, well, look, the exposure was, say, 
three seconds long or four seconds long, and I got three and a half or four flashes. And now you correlate that frequency, that beat you know, of the of the of that object. In other words, that blink, 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 to the known frequencies of aircraft, and you know their blinking light rates. I know that sounds somewhat complicated, but you know something. Once you get into this and you're you're used to it. It's something you do within the first 10 minutes or 5 minutes of looking at something, and you've got that answer in and out of your head. And sometimes you say, well, that's consistent with aircraft. So photos, there's ways to actually you know, make these determinations, again, based on the, the experience uh, and the vast data in, in a database or your own experience. Now, for me, I joined MUFON for the first time in 1971. Wow. Now, Maybe MUFON we are around. the same vintage. <laughs> Well, I'm 53. I have no problem saying. Well, I'm a little older than that, but I hear you. All right. Okay. Well, it, 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 I got into MUFON at age 11 when I got out of the hospital. I had a, a major surgery, and as a gift, I got a, uh, an invitation. Well, not an invitation, a subscription, sorry, to MUFON. And I got these little, you know, ditto page, uh, purple handout sheets that came every so often from MUFON, and I would just eat them up. I was like, oh, this is so cool. <laughs> you know, it's coming to me. I, I, I'm special. Look at me. I'm yeah. 11 years old, and I get this really cool stuff. <laughs> you know, and it was fun. It was fun. It was exciting. But um, it was also touching something in me that I had always felt, even as a young child, and that is that we can't be alone. You know, because like you had mentioned, that picture of the Earth, for the first time, we're all a family from space. Mm-hmm. One species as seen from space. That does change everything when the borders disappear and you don't see the politics and you just see one planet there's quite a lot of people that actually see the world that way and live their lives that way in fact entire nations and and the politics of nations and and the economies of nations have been shaped by that outlook in fact in the decades past moving to the forward to the present day so there's a tremendous socioeconomic impact of having seen ourselves in that one photo from that far back. And so, you know, when you look at a, a picture, all right, they obviously have, you know, they can speak a thousand words, you know, and so taking the analysis of photos like we are just talking about, um, you know, we take that very seriously because it too can have a vast impact. Yeah, absolutely. Comes, especially if we don't know what we're looking at because mm-hmm. that's what we want. That's the holy grail for me. Well, that, that brings us... befuddled. Okay, well, that brings us right into a question that we uh, kind of got into a little bit before the show, and that was uh, I sent you a photograph taken by our old friend Joe Ferrier, who was a a well-known personality on this station, ON 1240, for over 50 years, a talk show host, but he also had an avocation as a UFO aficionado and was pretty well-known in the 60s. And then uh, we had him on our show several years ago, and he said that he got out of that, field so that his life would return to normal all sorts of strange things were happening and all this but you do hear that from experts here and there mm-hmm. so uh, he took a photo in 1967 a series of photos and i sent you one of them and uh, as well as trying to get your opinion on it i was going to ask what is the difference if any in, uh, must, well, there must be a difference in analyzing photos with uh, old media such as film as when you and i started out mm-hmm. or photos today that are almost 90 percent or more digital <laughs> So uh, what was your opinion of Joe's photo, which is on our talking points page, or at least I asked it to be put there on BehindTheParanormal.com? Yeah, I think it's up there. And um, 
I've, I've looked at it several times. I The first thing you can say is this was taken on acetate, you know, film, mm-hmm. and it was then printed on photo paper. Um, and then that photo was then scanned by a computer and later on at some point in the future or re-photographed by another camera. Um, but the point is... The fact that it's a digital photo now, when we know it was a negative, means that it got sent through several steps yeah. after its initial photo. If you have the negative, for instance, that's the kind of thing that we look for in cases like this, especially when they're this much older. You mm-hmm. know? And, and Bruce McAbee, great guy. Yeah, he's know? been on the show, yeah. yeah, yeah he went to school in the Worcester area here, so he's... Uh, yeah, right. That's why I bring him up. A known and, person. Yeah. yeah, Bruce is a really good guy. And, you know, Bruce and I have talked a few times about photo analysis and all that and and one thing that comes to mind is when you look at a photo that's been removed several generations from its original form you lose a tremendous amount of data hmm. for instance when this was printed we don't know for instance and, and when you look at the photo you see this long thing and it looks flat on the right and rounded at the other end which implies to me that it might be cylindrical in shape not saucer shape but i have only seen this one photo mm-hmm. so i don't know Okay. Now, when you look at there's a in the lower right there's a tree, and you see some branches, and you see also though some disconnected branches where it's the same color as the sky. What that means is that the tree and the photo are actually a little bit overexposed somewhere along the way, and the frail detail, like a little tiny twig in contrast against the sky, got lost when the brighter sky basically burned that out. Now, whether that was done on the negative or whether that was done in the print process or in the scan process, mm. um, all along the way you can set the exposure for those different aspects of a photo. So I don't know where that point took place. But on this photo that I see here, what it says to me is if it's happening to the tree, it's happening to the UFO object in the photo, meaning there's more detail on that UFO object that's gone because it's been blended in with the background of the sky. Now... Um, I can say with some certainty that we're probably looking uh, in the image, we're probably looking at a, a portion of that UFO that is shaded and thus stronger data is there as far as the negative is concerned and it's harder to blow that away, blow that out in a transfer process. If there's any kind of other detail on this object, right where the dark border uh, meets with you know the sky, perhaps there is a subtle shape that's lost because of the generational loss over time of transference and copying, copying, transference of the negative, the original negative. So when I look at the picture, it's really hard to tell what else is going on there. Now, there's a little protrusion at the bottom, which implies that for whatever reason, there's a structure down there that retained its shadow value, meaning that something else is sticking out or sticking downward, but the other side of it's missing. It's blended with the sky. And because this is a, uh, a, a JPEG-type file, you can actually see all of the data is almost pixelized. In other words, you can actually see the little computer pixels that make up the, the image because it's been saved so many times and or compressed so many times by the process which edited it. Mm-hmm. Now, Confusing as all that sounds, what it really says is 
there's no way to tell what this is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, Mark, did you notice that on the right hand, now Joe said that after, when he was taking this, uh, a disc-like object came out of the bottom of this craft, and there is a disc-like shape in the bottom, I guess it's just sort of off the trees there. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, I saw that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that that's what he said, and he said he witnessed that, and he's, uh, yeah. that's the thing. So you really, really can't tell. I mean, I, that, that makes perfect sense. No, and, and you know what? And here, here's what I say fairly often so people understand that I'm not trying to say they didn't say what they thought they saw mm. or didn't see what they, they thought they saw. And that is that if you saw something that, sh- that shot off the bottom, okay, this photo doesn't show that in any clarity. Um, so that object that's down below could be a stain on the photographic print, which was then scanned. Okay. Um, so... For instance, as an example, or it could be on the negative. We don't know because we don't have access to either. Mm-hmm. Now, there's also areas in the photo that show um, a, a strange smoothing process that took place. That's possibly part of the compression and resaving. Um, it really is, you know, it's a tough call to make, especially when something is this old and has gone through so many transfers from the original. Mm-hmm. Now, with the original negative, I'd have no problem. I have one here from overseas that was sent to me because the imagery that was sent to me for analysis wasn't good enough. So I actually asked for the original negative, and they sent it from you know huh. overseas. You know, so I have it here to analyze, and I'm going to do a, a lengthy, good job checking this this out. You know, for them. But again, you know, you can't get the negatives for every photo you're looking for, of course. So you have to do your best with what you have. Mm-hmm. But given this photo. There's really not a whole lot we can say. I mean, if there's more photos, that's always good. That's corroborating evidence, and you can probably coax a little more data out. But it's not that easy. No, no that makes sense. How many images a year do you analyze for MUFON? A year or a month? Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, both. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I've, I've, I've analyzed, um, at most, I, I think I've done several hundred a month. Um, and that counts video as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, yeah, and, and per year, I, I just never added it up. But if I average, say, I don't know, 60 or 70 a month based on, you know, that, that sounds about right. I could be underestimating a little bit. Um, you know, then you're, you're, you're talking about between six to 700 photos a year. Um, wow. And it's not, it's not all just with mutual UFO networks. Sometimes I get them proactively uh, before they become UFO case with MUFON so that I can you know, when they show up and people start saying, whoa, check this out, uh, you know, that I can jump on it and say, wait, here's my analysis that did it three months ago. You know, like the case of the Jerusalem UFO uh, video. Yeah, what, what's that about? I'm not familiar with that. Well, I've heard of it, but I haven't looked into it. There's a video which shows this bright light coming down from the sky um, and stopping right above the Dome of the Rock. Oh, in, dear. Uh, the old city. <laughs> Okay, and then you see a flash which seems to illuminate the city block below and then it takes off and goes up. And you hear people reacting and all that. Now, at first you say, wow, that's pretty cool, except I saw uh, numerous problems with it right up front, and that was that to me it looked like it had been a computer-generated process that created it. So the first thing I did was I looked for corroborating evidence. If this thing did this over the Dome of the Rock, you would get more than the three people that were saying it happened when at one in the morning, um, Jerusalem and old and the old city uh, and, and people in that area 
There's young people down there. They use social networks. They would have seen it. And the, no, the number of cops alone is uh, staggering. Of course. Yeah. It would have been visible for miles around by thousands of people, yet only two or three reports came in. That's usually a good indicator that you're looking at something that's been localized, that is something that was done by someone else. It doesn't mean for sure that that's what it was, because there is a very small chance that those three people, or however many, four or five, were the only ones that actually saw it. But um, an Israeli newspaper and another journalist in Israel actually did a uh, little more digging with information they could get at that we couldn't from overseas, and they discovered that the people that saw it were all part of the same film class. <laughs> so those are called smoking guns, and yeah, now yeah. the burden is on them to explain away how you happen to be the only ones that saw this. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> you know? there you go. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then there was one video showing a close-up of it, spinning and doing things, and when I correlated that video taken by one of the other people with an original video taken by uh, a different person, I saw two different things happening in the video. Now, they were subtly different, but when I saw them as being different, I called that out. And, of course, I came under instant attack for, you know, being a debunker and all that. But you know what? I'm not. I'm just calling it as I see it based on, you know, my experience, you know, and also on science. And, yeah, I know some things can't be, you know, explained by science. I know that. But when you look at that Dome of the Rock video, for instance, there was more to it than meets the eye, and it really, really bothered me that no one picked up on it. It really bothered me that no one could really see, you know, uh, that this was only three or four people that were reporting this and not vast hundreds, and it didn't show up on any of the social networks. That was a big problem. That That, does, that is rather telling. Although, you know, we do run into cases, uh, and I'm thinking of you know, all areas of the paranormal, not just UFOs, where some people see things and some people don't. And there may be reasons in physics that can be reached for to explain that sort of thing. If this were legitimate, I mean, have you run into cases where some people have seen the thing and some people have not, even in highly populated areas, such as like the Long Island UFO sightings and all that business? Well, absolutely. As a matter of fact, um, you know, I'm I'm, I'm one of those people. I I have a, you know, it's an ongoing thing. I have this this strange... uh, you know, issue that I have where I actually can hear uh, conversations and and <laughs> he's not he's hearing voices in his head. <laughs> um, and, and I'll actually see uh, people that are sort of semi-transparent. Now, some people would call them ghosts. I just look at it as science unexplained. Well, that, that's when, what we talked about in in our our podcast, and uh, I wanted to get into that. I suppose this is as good a time as any. Um, well, you know our interpretation of that. You're having multiverse experiences, and and it seems that not only do some people have that and and take it for granted, but more and more people, at least, or at least more and more people, are reporting that, that sort of thing to us. So t- tell us, yeah. uh, go ahead and talk about that. And, and I, I, I like the little dog incident too. Yeah, and, uh, and, and uh, what Paul's referring to is. Uh, sort of a culmination where I thought that um, I had uh, some kind of medical defect going on in my head. Some people argue that I do, but <laughs> but the fact is, okay, I'm a science guy, all right, and uh, it doesn't mean I don't believe in the paranormal. I certainly do. Um, you know, there are paranormal events that you know can't be explained yet, but I do have you know the comfort in the fact, the faith, if you would, that 
they'll eventually be explained by science, because I do believe that it's all science. Well, anyway. Yeah, that's all nature, um, all part of nature, you know. Exactly, and, and nature is following a set of rules that can be defined by scientific uh, you know, algorithm. Uh, even ghosts can eventually be explained by science, you know, in some fashion. Yeah. Um, and people may be shaking their heads about that, but if you think about Not it... Not if they listen to this show all the time, no. Yeah, right? If you think about it, there, there are rules that are followed. If, if there weren't rules for, say, ghosts, then they would be doing things that we've never seen a ghost do, like get in your car and drive away with it. Oh, uh, well, not so fast, Mark. <laughs> there are some things I could tell you, but I, I get your point. Go ahead. You know, I picked the wrong show for that analogy. But, <laughs> but I agree. My, my mother's uh, been seeing, uh, she called them ghosts all her life. So, I mean, there, there's certainly that going on. Yeah. However, um, the whole concept that I believe is happening is, I, I, some years ago I had to have a, an operation in the brain where they had to remove something. And... Uh, they, they disturb, you know, the, they, they had to cut a hole, basically, and drill down in. I hate to say it that way, because it's making people go, Ugh. Yeah, <laughs> me, me included. Uh, yeah, well, anyway. Um, but the result was that there was obviously some scar tissue, and I noticed some changes when I came out of that. And the changes weren't intellectual. The changes weren't, um, you know, terribly ethereal in any way. But I did notice that I had a, a weird... Uh, awareness thing going on, and I just attributed it to the brain, you know, healing, you know, getting back to where it was. So I was just happy to be alive. <laughs> oh, yeah. But um, as it turned out, uh, I started to hear, as I said, I started to hear conversations, which became more and more clear as time went on. I began to hear them, and it, but it wasn't communication to me. I was just hearing like people talking to each other, like if you pass people on the street, it was really strange. And then uh, I saw these like like individuals, almost like a ghost or whatever you'd call it, but they weren't paying any attention to me whatsoever. They were just interacting with their environment, whatever it was, as if I was watching a TV show through very poor signal. <laughs> Mark, I'm going to stop you there because we're, we're going to take a break. Uh, we will right. be right back. With the, I, I can't wait to hear the rest of this conversation uh, with our guest, Mark D'Antonio. And you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240. We'll be right back. The Extra Point. Afternoons on ON 1240 Radio, bringing you local interviews, stories, and opinions on the local athletes with none other than radio great Lou Mandeville. Yes, that's me. Afternoons Monday through Friday on ON 1240. Okay, well, here we are, and I just wanted to remind you of several charities that Ben and I have adopted they include several veterans' charities, and we particularly want to bring your attention to USA Cares. Uh, they are a tremendous group that assists financially uh, families of, of fallen veterans and the families of veterans who require it. And uh, it's a great group. They, they raise money, and out goes a check if they're short for the mortgage that month or or some other problem arises in that in that vein. Also, uh, Canadian veterans advocacy for our Canadian listeners, too, and for everybody, because Canada stood with us in the war on terror since the beginning, and our good friend Mike Blaze in Ontario has founded that group to do legislative adv adv and regulatory advocacy for Canada's veterans as well. He's done some great work up there. So check those out, usacares.org and canadianveteransadvocacy.org. So let's return to our guest, back to Behind the Paranormal here in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. Now, Mark D'Antonio... Astronomer, MUFON, uh, photo analyst, and uh, I think a thinker extraordinaire on this subject. Uh, uh, why don't you continue with your what we would call multiverse experiences, or however you would interpret them, and um, please, please uh, continue the uh, the ethereal narrative that you uh, 
had experienced? All right, it's, it's um, yeah, I'll keep it concise. You know, one of the things that, um, yeah, again, I had been saying was that I started to hear strange conversations, which I could start to make out over time. I didn't know what they were coming, where they were coming from, or who was saying them, but. Um, I thought maybe it was just something with the brain, you know, as it was healing. I thought, well, I'm just hearing, uh, you know, uh, shadows of former conversations. Maybe they're replaying, maybe the brain in the healing process doing this. That's what I kind of thought. Uh, and then I started seeing what people would call ghosts, okay. But um, they weren't paying any attention to me, as I said. So the thing that changed my mind on all of this was when I was working in my shop, we are actually working on... Uh, uh, with a, a, a brilliant um, you know, Academy Award winning producer working on uh, a, a prop for a movie that's coming out on UFOs <laughs> um, this month I think right? or, really? or next yeah. month yeah um, well, what's the movie I'm just oh we can't talk about it unfortunately because oh, all right. it's not been released but um, when the press release goes out we'll be able to but okay. I was working on a prop for that and I looked up and I saw this weird semi-transparent dog walk into my workshop now of course at this point i had been seeing and hearing this strange stuff so much that i started playing music 24 7 in my head you know so that i could actually uh sleep or do my job without having to be in you know distracted by this because it was happening so much and i figured well this is just my lot in life i've got to deal with it. i figured you know it's whatever's going on inside the head so i saw this dog look like a pekingese dog of all things <laughs> and it walks into the shop, and it's, again, I can see through it, you know, and kind of like looking through water, a shape that looks like a dog in water. So couldn't really see exactly what it looked like. But it curled up and it laid down on the floor. And so, of course, the first thing I did was the eye test. Okay, you know, left and right eye, yep, it's in both. And I leaned my head to the left and right. Wow, it has three-dimensional form. So I said, you know what, this is killing me. I'm, I'm, I'm done with this stuff. This thing is lasting. The other ones I saw would be just like fleeting glimpses, not in my peripheral vision but straight ahead. Mm -hmm. All right, so I'm thinking, wow, this thing is here. It's showing three-dimensionality. I got up, I walked over, and I stepped right where it was on the floor. What happened next changed everything. As I stepped on it, as if someone had taken a bungee cord, wrapped it around the back of my foot, and yanked for all they were worth, I felt like my leg was being pulled out from under me as this thing got up off the floor, realized, Something invaded its physical space and ran out of the, of the shop. And it pulled my foot with it, and it almost knocked me over. And in my struggle to regain my balance, I injured my lower back. So I, I was all alone in my shop. No one could, no one saw this thing. And, of course, my first thought, <laughs> figures, go figure. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you figure that, that, that no one's here to see this or whatever? So uh, the bottom line is that when that happened, that changed everything because now I knew something physical really is happening. That's right. This wasn't in my head as I've been thinking for the last eight months <laughs> when it started that this was something in my head. You know, and now here I am uh, with an injured back and having felt, it, it's like the, the two north poles or the two south poles of a magnet. You try to push them close to each other, you feel that repelling force. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's what I felt. That's just what this felt like. It felt like my foot was being pulled out from under me by a repelling force where I wasn't being touched by anything. I felt no contact, but it was like a repelling, weird push. I can't explain it other than to imagine, have people imagine how that feels. 
mm-hmm. you know, what that might feel like. You know, if you take two magnets and try that, you'll, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So anyway, that's what it was. And that's the kind of thing which made me start thinking more seriously about the whole multiverse concept. And so as I began to uh, think about, uh, you know, string theory and multi-universe um, conceptual information and, and ideas, one of the things I thought about was this, Paul. I thought, what if universes are like sheets on a clothesline? They blow in the wind, and sometimes they come into contact with each other. But instead of just, like, brushing up against each other, they're energy-based or however, and, and they actually can pass through each other. The, the, that's what analogy. I've experienced for, for the last 40 years, Mark. And, Mark, we, we're going to continue this. We do have a caller. And, uh, hello, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Hello. Hello. Yeah, you have a question for Mark? Sure. Yeah. Well, this is Steve. Good morning. Oh, hey. Steve, of course. I didn't recognize your fluting tones. How are you, Steve? Steve is the <laughs> uh, the organizer of the uh, first New England UFO conference. and uh, Which was successful. Very su- Oh, wonderful, wonderful job. A very dear friend of, of mine and Mark's. So, uh, what do you have for us, Steve? Well, I, I'm just, I, I just wanted to thank Mark and thank yourselves for the uh, success of, of the conference. Mark has been a, a, a good friend of mine. I, I still, Mark, I still have to get out to see you at your... At your of place. course. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I just wanted to, you know, to chime in and support Mark on his, uh, on his work. Oh, absolutely. Well, I hope to get up to your lair sometimes, Mark, and, and there's, we'll see you. And uh, now we're having a great conversation here, as we did uh, in the, the podcast we're going to be putting up that we did at the uh, at the conference. But uh, that's yeah. excellent. Well, Steve, uh, thanks thanks very much for calling in. Well, um, you know, you're uh, I certainly second everything you said. Okay. Well, take care, guys. Okay. And, uh, continue with the show, and I, you know, uh, I. Mark is doing a great job. He's, he, he's got so much going, you know? He does. So, uh, Thank everybody. And we'll, we'll look forward to next year. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Excellent. Okay. I'll be in touch with you all. Very good. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve. Okay. okay. Bye-bye. Very good. Okay, uh, Mark, we were involved in a conversation here about these uh, multiversal phenomena, and uh, everything you say matches up with things that have happened to me. That's what really got me going, was the same thing that got you going, is that there are physical, definite physical attributes to these alleged spirits. Yeah, and, and you're, you're right. Now, I don't mean to, to, to keep you from finishing your sentence, but I did want to just throw out... No, no, go ahead. Okay, thank you. The, the, um, you know, my, uh, <clears throat> my family, a lot of people in my family have seen and experience physical manifestations like that that could not be explained. Now, to me, again, and my term is science unexplained. Eventually, we'll know what these are, what they are, and, and if they're uh, deceased ancestors, I think science will be able to help us with that. Uh, I think if, uh, you know, because if you look at it this way, if there's a supreme creator, okay, of the universe, um, I'm sure that the supreme creator, he or she, is a brilliant scientist. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> who, who would right? create every possible possibility. Yeah, I mean, there would have to be, uh, you know, a, a supreme science understanding, because you don't just say, make a planet, because there's science behind the making of a planet that we detect, you know. Sure. And I know that's a simplistic view. There's, there's a lot more to that than, than I, I, I can get into, obviously, in this time frame, of course. But, you know, the point is, you know, the multi-universe is where we might find parallel dimensions. But 
the thing to keep in mind is that they're not like really, really sheets on a clothesline. That was my way of trying to pass on the analogy. They're really more like uh, spheres that coexist in the same place. Yeah, that's just so, how we, we experience it, yeah. Right. Now imagine a sphere of water, and it has waves, and, and it moves around, and it undulates a little bit. And then another sphere of water that's very, very close to it, maybe just a little larger, a little smaller. Well, as it undulates, then you're going to see that its peaks and its waves might penetrate up into the, the other sphere just outside of it. And the one above might dip down and touch the, the other sphere. Well, those contact points between, say, universes, to me, indicates that there's billions upon billions of contact points happening all the time. That's right. So I think that there's ways to leverage that. I think that in science, we'll eventually be able to find ways to either communicate with that, because if you think about it, either communicate with that or, you know, go to it, find a way to get to it, because if you think about it, when I stepped on that little weird dog shape and it yanked my foot off from under me, that's communication. Yeah. Crude, but that's communication. And so I was like, wow, that that's actually a communication with something other than what we're used to. Mm, yeah, you <laughs> so, might say that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I'm nobody special. I think that this is something people can all see and hear, do, whatever. I don't feel like there's anything special. I don't think that there are certain people that have certain talents. I think that everybody, you know, as a human animal, has this ability. It's just a matter of whether you focus on it. I was forced to because I thought it was a medical anomaly in me. Um, so... That's why I focused on it for as many months as I did. And after about eight months, when I finally stepped where this thing was and felt that physical thing happen, that just that kind of blew me away. Well, I think now, we need to do a, a, an entirely different, you know, a show on this because there's just so much to talk about. We only have an hour. There is. There Mark, is. I wanted to get into a couple of other things before we burn up this hour. It's the fastest yeah. hour I've experienced in a while. Um, those who believe in ancient astronauts, and this is getting us back into the, U, the visual of U, visuals of UFOs. Yeah. Um, those who believe in that sometimes point to ancient petroglyphs as depicting aliens or alien symbols. I mean, as an expert yeah. in those visuals, uh, what say you? Well, uh, it, when I uh, I did a talk in, in Denver um, uh, a few years ago on petroglyphs and pictographs, you know, uh, you know, scratched images and, and painted cave drawings. And what I had done was I, I visited a few sites and I acquired data. And one of the things that I noticed, again, just being the, the you know the, the scientist at heart here, one of the things I did was I actually found an interesting parallel that was happening. I noticed that in the northern Kimberley region of Australia, there are pictographs in the caves that are thousands of years old that are showing the Wanjana, an ancient race of beings that are deities that were deities at the time that were said to have come from space, and they were represented as large creatures with with big eyes, no mouth. And the reason for that had to do with, you know, the mouth being open meant floods would come in, as I'll tell you in a minute. And they had this round ball uh, around their head. And then, all the way across the world, a totally separate culture um, in Italy drew warriors in a cave, Alcamonica, showing, uh, you know, round-headed creatures that had like a round ball on their heads. And then in Renaissance painting, we see deities represented with round balls around their heads. In fact, we see this all over the place and across cultures that never talked. So I had to say, to me, this means 
something was seen by every one of the people in these cultures that drew these images on the walls or scratched them into the stone. They were seen by somebody. What is that? Now, I don't think it was a helmet, okay? To me, if you can go interstellar, you don't need a helmet. However, maybe it was a biological germ filter of some kind, a force field germ filter. You know, the, the concept of the force field is in science fiction, but as we know, science fiction often becomes science fact. So maybe it was a, a biofilter of sorts, mm-hmm. you know, an advanced biofilter seen, you know, as these different parties uh, and these different extraterrestrials moved around the world and, and started doing their thing, you know, looking around and people saw them and reproduced them on their walls and in their art. So the halo is something that is all throughout history throughout many different cultures. Mm-hmm. And I think that that needs to be dealt with. I think that more research needs to be done. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's move on to space now. What is an exoplanet? Oh, well. <laughs> As we shift gears yet again. No, no, that's, that's fine. Because, you know, the beings that would have been, you know, mistaken for deities by the ancient cultures would have come from an exoplanet. And an exoplanet is a planet well, around maybe. another star. Yeah. Other than the sun. And um, in the late 80s, we found one or two, you know, a few here or there, and it didn't seem like they were very prevalent. Now, it's 2013, and we see that there are more planets than stars in the universe. What a shift. Mm-hmm. Now, our galaxy of 400 billion some odd stars has so many planets in it that it looks like a statistical sample points to the fact that, points to the possibility, a strong possibility, that there's at least, just in our own galaxy, 17 billion, with a B as in beta, 17 billion habitable planets out there. Not all like Earth, some are bigger, some are smaller, but habitable, meaning that they're in that special zone around their star where it's not too hot, not too cold, and most importantly, liquid water can form. Because if our Earth is any indication, life needs liquid water if you want to find some type of carbon-based life like ours. Whether it's, And when I say like ours, I mean microbes, platypus, <laughs> yeah. okay, uh, you know, things like that, you know, uh, animals of all sorts uh, that, that exist in our planet and on our planet come from a water-based background. Water was essential. Water was required. So... We obviously are very intent on finding planets with water. And they would only exist in on a rocky planet like Earth that was in the habitable zone around its star. And so far, it looks like there's 17 billion of those and climbing just in our galaxy. Well, that, that's that's really, really amazing. Uh, but, of course, we're talking about life as we know it, and we get into this in our last discussion. What about yeah. what Ben and I run into in the multiverse, if you will, in paranormal research all the time? Life as we don't know it. Life yeah. that is not carbon-based. Even even Carl Sagan speculated about the perhaps uh, uh, plasma-based life form, something we think we've run into too. Uh, what's the deal on that? Well, let's 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 take a good let's let's expound upon that that very thing, uh, plasma-based life form. What if we were to talk about um, human existence? Uh, there's a lot of people, for instance, that feel uh, a duality within them. They are like puppets manipulating 
know, from within within the puppet. They're manipulating through some means. They're manipulating the body via some energy uh, that they feel as a separate thing from their body. You know, that duality thing, that's something i felt ever since I was a kid. I don't mm. know what to make of it. Maybe science will explain that someday, but right now it can't. But what if uh, there's a, uh, beings that actually develop um, a way the need to have a physical form and could actually be in the form of just the energy that runs our physical corporeal cells. Uh, if that's the case, well then here we have an example of life as we don't know it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I, I don't have any uh, argument against or reason to doubt that there's other types of life out there at all. Yeah, it just seems just that to, to, to limit our vision, and, and you don't do that, but I'm saying that a lot of people seem to limit our vision of what life is. And Correct. certainly people starting with Sir Fred Hoyle, the great astronomer, you know, who was an inspiration to me, life, he believed, was the, the rule in the universe, regardless yeah, right. of how you define it, not the exception, you know? Exactly so. And, and, you know, and my book, which will be out, and I'm not trying to, you know, hawk the book here, but... Oh, by all means. No, I, that's what I want to oh. give you a chance to do. Oh, okay. I, I, I wasn't, you know... As good a time as any. Thank you. Um, the book is called The Populated Universe, and uh, I'm just finishing up illustrations now, uh, and I have a, a, a guest author contribution that um, is, is going to add to the last chapter about the search here at home for extraterrestrial life, and it's, again, a science-based discussion about uh, my feeling that the universe is predisposed to the creation of life. And yeah. that, that predisposition is based on the fact that we see the building blocks of life generated almost everywhere we look on Earth in the most extreme environments and some of the most inhospitable places. So elsewhere in the solar system, I have no doubt that it's out there. We just haven't found it yet because we don't have the capability to dive into that place yet. Maybe deep under Europa's ocean or in Enceladus's ocean, uh, we might find life forms, microbes or otherwise, that exists there. I the don't moons have any of doubt Jupiter, that's possible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Jupiter's moon Europa, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, wh where is, um, how exactly are these exoplanets found astronomically? You know, well, astronomically, in, in, from a scientific point of view, there's a number of ways. The oldest technique is something called astrometry, where they would actually look for a wobble in a star's motion in the sky. All stars are moving through the sky, which is kind of interesting, and I'm not talking about from the rotation of the Earth. They're actually all in orbit around the galaxy. And we're doing it. Other stars are doing it. It takes tens of millions of years to go around the galaxy once, but they do. And in their orbit, they might wobble as they're moving around the galaxy. And we see that that uh, wobble uh, and say, hey, something's making that star wobble. Now, it could be another star nearby or it could be, you know, a planet that's around that star <laughs> that's pulling on it, tugging on it slightly and making it wobble as it's moving. And so those kinds of considerations are things that we look for. But it's the oldest and it's the most error-prone um, technique. There's other techniques. You know, from that, we, we, we go all the way to another end of the spectrum, something called pulsar timing or microlensing. Those two techniques require, you know, far more advanced uh, capabilities. But the interesting thing is, in between, there's a whole host of, of other uh, secondary techniques that are used, things like detecting how fast the star might be moving toward us or away from us. That's called radial velocity. Um, and then there is um, 
there's the transit, which is what the Kepler Space Telescope was looking for, and that is a, a planet that moves in front of its star as seen from the Earth. Now, you have to understand, the nearest star is tremendously far away, and if we had to move a quarter, just a quarter, a coin, as far away from us as possible so that it would be the same diameter as the star system, star Alpha Centauri, the main component of Alpha Centauri looked, you know, as compared to the quarter of the same size, we have to move that quarter 700 miles away just to see the quarter at the same diameter that the star would be <laughs> if we could see its diameter. Now, that analogy engages your right brain and really says, wow, I get that. Well, guess what? Planets are a thousand times smaller than that. And now I'm talking about the nearest star. So you can imagine the technology and the science required to be able to see these minuscule changes in the star's light when a planet moves in front of it. It's a tremendously, tremendous uh, uh, achievement. So there's thousands of candidates for planets around other stars, and we're well on our way to being able to determine whether these are habitable planets or not or whether they're Earth-like planets or not. The time will come when we will be able to detect life by looking at the atmosphere of these planets as they pass in front of their star. And keep in mind that most planets don't pass in front of their star as seen from the Earth. Those, just by chance, that do are the ones we're seeing. So keep in mind there's a lot more out there we haven't seen. Yeah. Is it possible that alien visitors, if... And, of course, there's, there's a lot of speculation on this. Some of these visitors, you know, should they be legitimate, that might uh, are sometimes thought of by some witnesses as time travelers or other sorts of things other than sp- people from other planets. But assuming that at least some of them do come from other planets, is it possible they could use the multiverse to get here and therefore overcome all the physical difficulties that we usually associate with space travel? Well, you know, there's, there's a couple... I wouldn't say time travel per se because the concept of time travel when it comes to space travel for us comes from the fact that we would have to have generation shifts. Even if we could travel very close to the speed of light, we'd have to have generation after generation after generation of people that live and die on these vast arcs (laughs) moving to these other, other stars. But the fact is we wouldn't be violating any physics if we could utilize some of the other propulsion concepts and techniques that uh, we're starting to see now. On a distant horizon, there's a possibility for a drive called the Alcabieri Drive. Now, in Star Trek, you heard of the warp drive. Well, Miguel Alcabieri, who was a Mexican scientist, actually determined in 1994 that there was a way for us to get to the nearest stars. Not in 19,000 years like conventional rockets would take us, but in only a week or two. It sounds outlandish because... On the surface, it looks like we have to travel many times the speed of light, and superluminal travel is not possible in our universe. But we wouldn't be traveling in our universe at superluminal speeds. As a matter of fact, what we'd have to do is take our current position where we're at on our ship and then just shrink the distance using energy and this warp drive, so to speak, and it'll take our distant origin point we want to travel to and pull it closer to us by warping the fabric of space. There's a phrase, warping the fabric of space. Yeah. And then behind us, extending the fabric of space and stretching it behind us. So technically, by doing that, we would literally be sitting still in our ship, but the universe would be passing by us. <laughs> now, 
Yeah, and those yeah. people on the ship would feel absolutely nothing. In fact, they wouldn't even register any motion whatsoever. You know, they call it an inertial moment, right? Where they actually feel the inertia of the ship as it changes. Mm. Um, you wouldn't feel that. Because within the warp bubble, you're completely shielded from that. Not only that, to an observer watching on Earth, they would not see the destination get closer. They would just see the ship just kind of blink out and it's gone. Because in a, in, a, in a split second, as the ship engages the Alcaburi drive, and there's problems with this drive, by the way, but as it engages the drive, it would just seem to vanish because it would already be out of the solar system by the time they blinked a few times. So that all said, there are problems with the drive. Obviously, there's there's many, many considerations. You know, the creation of the warp bubbles, next to impossible. But then again, so is traveling faster than sound uh, some time ago. You know, so it goes on and on. You know, there's yeah. a lot of a lot of ways to go. But beyond that horizon, Paul, there's a whole other host of, of, of propulsion techniques buried in the string theory concept that could take us to the rest of the universe in seconds. And I know that sounds like pure, absolute hogwash and science fiction. But if string theory is proven correct, all right, then this corollary for space-time propulsion is part of it. So, you know, we're not looking at science fiction as much anymore, even with all the caveats. Mm -hmm. Well, there you have it. I guess it's the first day of school for sure. Well, our our first day of school, I mean, we're we're not even a type 1 society. No. (laughs) You know, a a type 1 society is many of your listeners probably know is, is based on the uh, amount of energy that's utilized efficiently by yeah. a society. Um, and, and Kardashev, uh, type 1, type 2, and type 3 society, uh, in, on that scale, we're about three-quarters of the way to type 1. Okay, Mark, um, I'm afraid I have to stop you. We're just flat out of time. You're, but you're uh, out of time. great conversation. We'll be in touch. We're going to do this again very soon. Hey, Paul, thank you so much for having me. I'm sorry I didn't get to say hi to Ben, but you know what? School's more important than listening to this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's so in his case, certainly. But we'll be in touch. Thank you so much again. Okay, thank you. Okay, everybody, Mark D'Antonio. Uh, visit uh, our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can find over 300 free, I should, 300, 500 free podcasts of past shows. Also, check out our site at NewEnglandGhosts.com as well. you find some articles there and a lot of interesting stuff. Find my books there as well. Uh, Barnes and Noble Nook and uh, Amazon Kindle, Amazon.com, etc., etc., etc. But if you buy them directly from uh, BehindTheParanormal.com, I will autograph them for you. Boy, that's a big deal. And you will help us keep all those podcasts free. And you'll find all kinds of direct uh, links there to our sites, uh, to the uh, charities we mentioned. On our CBS radio edition of the show on Sunday, November 24th in Boston, Pittsburgh, Detroit, Windsor, and Seattle, Vancouver, we will welcome renowned artist Rex Sexton. We'll talk about his dramatic near-death experience and what it did to his life. And next Monday, Monday, right here on ON 1240, we're going to be talking to artist and visionary Tom Oliver for a look at mind over matter to the point that nothing is impossible. So we'll leave you this evening with a thoughtful quote from the Canadian doctor and educator Sir William Osler. We are here to add what we can to life, not to get what we can from life. I'm Paul Eno, and greetings from Ben as well. He'll be back with us next week. Have a good week, and uh, thank you for joining us on our great cosmic journey. Talk to you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.